Welcome to Heavyweights. I'm John Rigolizzo. I'm Armin Tlui. I'm Sam Engelmanet. And we have a guest today. Uh, we're very excited to have this guest on. We've been uh, this is one that's been long awaited. Eudaimonia Esquire from Twitter is here. Twitter and YouTube. Um, Yuda is a Catholic post-liberal personality on Twitter.com, or I, I guess it's X now or Zitter. Apparently or so. Whatever. Um, and he also has a YouTube account where he provides actually substantive commentary instead of rehashing headlines from a conservative and I guess post-liberal perspective. Yuda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is fun. It's uh it's cool to see these sort of uh, organic projects pop up between people who are interested in these conversations and committed. And so it's always fun to hop on and have these conversations. So I appreciate you guys having me. Of course. Thanks for coming. Happy on. Yeah. All right. So um, for those of you who are not familiar uh, with Yuda, just give yourself like a 90 second elevator pitch. Who are you? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, uh, in the grand scheme, I'm nobody. And I think that's kind of what has helped me to cultivate. I wouldn't say I'm big enough to have an audience. I, I don't like that term. You know, a lot of these YouTube types will say my audience. And I always think that sounds funny. But uh, I think I've cultivated something of a, of a following, at least in our little circle of the world and of the internet, because I'm not a highly credentialed PhD who has a long publication history. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a real authority in a lot of those senses that people, uh, the people in these circles, especially more cerebral, heady circles, uh, flock to. I'm a guy who was uh, saved from atheism during my college years by Professor Patrick Deneen, really him specifically, a handful of others too at Notre Dame, and uh, really was convinced from really a life of of secularism, agnosticism, atheism, you know, oscillated, depended on my mood of the day, to, to Catholicism. And I wasn't raised Catholic either. You know, this wasn't sort of a uh, overcoming teenage angst and returning to childhood. It was very much, uh, I was convinced, truly, in the classroom. And I think that that story and that experience uh, was was authentic to a lot of people. I know it was authentic, but I think a lot of people understood the authenticity of that. And over time, you know, I started as a reply guy to Adrian Vermeule on Twitter. That's all I was. Uh, and then it grew from there. And people said, oh, this guy's kind of goofy. This guy's funny. Um, I guess I can't speak for these people who have decided to uh, listen to what I have to say. But it's uh, it's been good. It's been a good experience uh, on the Internet, on Twitter, on YouTube. I think it's good to have these conversations. And uh, I'm just a guy. And I think that there's some appeal to that. Someone who can sort of take what is takes some of the messages of some of these folks that we might consider at the helm of this movement and distill it or talk about it in a more human or humorous or goofy way, like to read Homeric messages into the Barbie movie, right? Like, like Adrian <laughs> Vermeule's not going to do that. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a way to sort of uh, get down to earth with people. I think at least maybe I'm completely off base. Maybe you talk to someone who follows me and be like, what? No, I hate the guy. I just follow him to see what schizo stuff he says. I don't know. But that's my take. That might be your girlfriend who does that. Right. Yeah, she might. She might. Well, uh, I'll, I'll interrogate her after. Yeah, right. Yeah. They'll be like, shoo, these three guys I just met online <laughs> tell you that you're a schizophrenic. You know, you hate following me. Maybe. Her post would certainly uh, lend, lend to that theory. So, all right. Since we're on that now, you are um, famously the, uh, the, I guess, heterosexual life partner of of one shoe on head of youtube fame yes yes um, 
without without giving us too much of the gory details well what's good with that oh lots good with it you know it's been uh what has it been nearly two years now really uh congrats it's been nearly thank yeah, you congratulations thank you it's been nearly t- two years um and the whole story is very funny because there was we we were in this i my first ever interaction with her was a tweet that i made in early 2021 uh i saw do you guys know the account edmund smirk yeah, yes. yeah. i think mm-hmm. that i think this was a jokey because he and i are, are buddies but this was like a jokey subtweet of him he had retweeted something she said and the tweet was was in and of itself was was based i forget entirely what it was but it's something about pro-family policy something like that and um i agreed with the tweet but i was also like okay i know the person it leans left i know that uh we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things i never watched any of her videos i just kind of knew this through osmosis being on twitter and all that and i made a tweet that was like Stop thirst following shoes. She hates you and what you believe. Right. And Michael Knowles, he and I are oomphies on Twitter and, and we we correspond from time to time. And he liked the tweet. He liked my tweet saying that about her. And that put it on her radar because <laughs> someone someone probably messaged him like, hey, Michael Knowles liked this tweet about you. And at the time, my tweet had like three likes. I only had like 5,000, 3,000 followers. So, you know, I didn't have nearly the following I do now. And she just so happened to be making a video reading hate comments at the time. And so she, at the last minute, because the video was basically done, as I understand it, she plugged this tweet in, my tweet. She plugged it in. She made it more of a joke about Michael Knowles than about me, because I was a nobody. I'm still a nobody. But in her life, I was especially a nobody compared to now. And uh, and that was our first interaction. And then months go by. I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. Someone told me I, I got in the video. Months go by. And I get added to this group chat that uh, she's in. And uh, first interaction was, hey, you were in my videos. Like, yeah, I know. Uh, and then, you know, you actually get to talk to someone, right? You, you get to know them and uh, you learn about them and why they hold the positions they do. And you just hit it off. And, uh, you know, a few months down the line, we uh, we met at an event in New York. And the rest is history. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, vaguely familiar with Shu. I was into the sort of like anti-feminist and sure. Obviously, you and I have Michael Knowles in common because uh, Michael Knowles is not only a moody on Twitter. Um, I've met him um, at Daily Wire. And That's he's awesome. Great. I, he's one. He's one I've got to meet. He's on my list. Yeah, he's he's really really nice guy. I genuinely like. I still have fond memories. Like even now, I'll just think about like the just like the one offhand comment he said to me, and I'll just be like, ah, oh, that was a good time. And uh, yeah, he's been he's been a good promoter of of like the right wing anonymous Twitter accounts. Yeah, that, he's uh he's smirk. mentioned me smirk like on his podcast on a show. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Um, all right. So the topic we wanted to get into today, actually, first of all, um, you are also what we would consider a post liberal, whatever that means. Please explain it to me. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't I didn't coin the term. Uh I kind of found myself wrapped up in the movement after the fact, you know, sort of it, to my mind, I don't know, you know, I don't know the post-liberals process thought process on it. And by that I mean uh Patrick Deneen, Adrian Vermeule, Chad Pecknold, and Gladden Pappen. Uh and I, I always put Sarab Amari in that group too. He's not involved in the pro the post-liberal order uh substack and podcast those guys do but i always kind of group him in with those guys as well uh but 
You know, I it really just started through my time with Patrick Deneen, you know, throughout undergrad and law school, actually, because I took some courses with him in law school, too, um, and, and and sort of becoming sympathetic to a lot of what these guys offer. Chiefly, uh, there's a few things baked into it, right? And I would say that it's just a series of assumptions, a series of uh, diagnoses that are anti-liberal in a sense, right? Anti-liberal in the modern progressive sense and in the more uh, philosophical classical sense of things about neutrality, right? The idea that neutrality is even even possible, much less a goal of the state, when that in and of itself is a positive prescription. Uh, there is no such thing as neutrality. And now, and we see now what's become of that. We see the conflation of secularism and neutrality, right? We see these as the uh, as the same thing, which really proves the point. But it's also a dissatisfaction with, with what I would call liberal market economics. And by liberal, I mean, again, in more of the classical sense, that, that gave rise to a lot of the 20th century, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, bootstraps theory, right? Or um, the atomization that led every man to be a consumer in and of himself, sort of robs him of any other identity, any other place, permanence, or or, or connection to time. Um, and so I, I, you know, to say what is post-liberalism in any one or two sentences would be a bit more difficult. But I think broadly, I would say that it's it's a recognition that liberalism in its classical form has brought about uh, a lot of harm that was not we weren't necessarily told about or it was in the fine print 400 300 years ago uh and i think that it worked for a time because there was residual grace from a pre-liberal system um you know a long history of, of christianity in europe but i think that as that started to erode because liberalism does nothing to sustain public and private pillars of virtue to sustain it we see now what what, what happens gross amounts of atomization alienation loneliness um monopoly domination by market forces people aren't free in any meaningful sense there it, it we focus so much on and this is the defect of liberalism you know we were so worried about the whims of a king or of a nobility that we didn't really think about the whims of of any private actors that can that can overwhelm us and this is what sorab's new book is about uh which you know it's not out yet i have an early copy but i won't discuss it that's <laughs> what that's about right um and so i think that there's just, it's this dissatisfaction with liberalism in both the right liberal and the left liberal sense, which is what dominates the American political spectrum, uh, with maybe a few exceptions of, I would say on the left side of it, maybe Bernie Sanders. I think he does mean what he says, even though I think he's dead wrong. I don't think AOC means what she says. Clearly, if you look to her sort of new trajectory of trying to be a celebrity, I think she was in it for the grift. So, but I think Bernie probably means, and on the right, I would say Vance, J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley probably mean what they say on the right. Uh, and they offer something a little more of a post-liberal perspective. I think J.D. Vance overtly does. I mean, he he was at uh, Patrick Neen's book launch event a few, like a month ago or two months ago. So I think J.D. Vance certainly does. And so I think that those are people to watch on the right. I think Blake Masters does, but unfortunately we didn't get there with him. But there are others, and I, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about the future in that regard. So I wanted to – jump in here real quick i think um i, I definitely find myself uh, aligned with a lot of what you just talked about with the uh the post liberals and certainly the uh the politicians you mentioned are probably among my favorites uh the very few that i actually would say nice things about uh right. in dc uh but um i know uh the post liberals sometimes find themselves particularly the uh the the prominent ones sometimes find themselves at odds 
with uh with other factions on the I guess what you'd say maybe dissident right, maybe more yeah. like the uh, the pa- the paleocon types, uh, yeah, particularly certainly. on uh, something like immigration. Mm-hmm. And I know um, I think it's Vermeule in particular has written a lot about uh, yeah. maybe not a lot, but has written about immigration from um, his perspective and and gotten a lot of um, so we say uh, negative feedback from the uh, the the paleocons, uh, yeah. saying that he's essentially trying to uh you know argue for open borders but with the uh um you know the cover of you know post-liberal catholicism rather than you know open borders neoliberalism uh what do you think about that well to 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 your first point about the the sort of the feuds uh with with other factions of the right especially the uh the 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 outside of the normie con sphere because really i think we all intuit that there is a cold civil war right now about what's going to when all the when the boomers are gone or a smaller proportion of of what they are now sean hannity is done like i mean he's a dinosaur the meteor is coming and there's a there's a civil war brewing about who's going to sort of take the reins for the american right and it won't be you know uh open shut it won't be a hard line division where the post-liberal integralists won or the um the 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 adherence of bronze age pervert one right i mean there there it'll be messy there will be coalitions and there will be different levels of influence no one's probably going to go extinct from these groups but you definitely see it brewing because there's a latent recognition that in the next 20 to 40 years i think it's going to really change and so we're all sort of gearing up for what will be what is the right right and uh and so i think that's what that's what you identify you see the paleocons you see the post liberals you see the people who are a little more overtly identitarian. Um, you know, you see a lot of different factions, and they feud a lot, um, especially the dissident right types. You know, so yeah, I, it's it's very interesting to observe. I I sometimes get involved with those people, sometimes not. I don't know how worth it it is really uh, to actually engage online with because what is Twitter? I don't know. But anyway, to your actual question about Vermeule about uh, immigration. It's it's a difficult one because it's it's one that I uh, alternate on quite a bit because on the one hand I'm made to think okay would I rather have Catholics from Central South America or what I mean well, I guess what what I see as an alternative a lot of the times is white European stock right and that sounds maybe attractive to certain people if you if you have a certain vision of America historically. But, but a lot of these folks who would be coming from Europe to America are probably not all that religious. They're probably secularized Westerners. I don't know how how keen I am on them coming, right? I mean, if we're if we're what what is the highest good? What is the highest good of 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 America or any state? And, and what kind of people are supporting that good? Now, does that mean that everyone every Catholic from Mexico would support that good either? No, certainly not. You have to take people as they are and as and, and they are individuals when it comes to that. Um, but at the same time, I I think that it's it's the, the position I don't agree with is the one I just articulated, the one that you the ones that are supportive of sort of what you would call white countries, I guess, uh, over countries that that are maybe uh, a little more religious, uh, because I don't want if you say you don't want anyone. OK, that's fine. I think that we have to tend to our own garden, and we've done a terrible job of it. We can't even take care of our homeless and our veterans, the people who are strapped with debt, college debt, medical debt particularly is one that galls me. Um, 
so I think that's a consistent position, but I don't want secularized Swiss people, right? And also, why are they leaving? If you're leaving Switzerland, why? Switzerland's a wealthy country. Are you actually going to contribute to this? Oh, these people are contributors. They're choosing to come to America. They're from Europe. That That's almost more worrisome to me because why are you leaving England? Unless it's for marriage or for something very personal, you know, it's, it's like the people who came to America hundreds of years ago were not the winners in Europe. If you were a winner in Europe, you stayed in Europe. There, there was no reason to seek your fortune in a new world and start a new life. And so I'm I'm a I'm a skeptical of people who are who are coming from uh, from Europe. Maybe I don't know. I, I think that I what I mean to say is I don't think that it's a it's a shoe in. Right? I don't think that it's we should necessarily assume that people from a certain kind of country who look a certain kind of way are going to be productive contributors uh, just because of what some some vague historical connection. What, what do we have in common with the nations of Central Europe? Maybe England, right? Maybe. I could see that. There's a shared language. But what do we share with Germany, really? Really? I mean, a, a, as as the European Union has become so secularized, soft bureaucratic tyranny, right? I mean, the, I don't know what we share with Germany in any meaningful sense other than skin color and vague, loose connections to Christianity historically. Uh, I don't know. So I think that if you want to say that we are a completely closed border nation or ought to be, I, I'm, I'm open to that because we have to tend to our own and we're doing a terrible job of it. Now, granted, we seem to not have much interest in doing it as we funnel more money to East Europe, but at least I think that's consistent. But I don't agree with the position that we should prioritize people of different heritages um, over people of different religions. I will take Catholics from Central America. I will take Catholics from Africa before I take an atheist from Germany or Switzerland. So building off of that, it seems like, uh, well, it doesn't seem like it is, um, there is a lot of you know Catholic influence in the post-liberal movement. How would you juxtapose post-liberalism with uh, Christian nationalism, which is pre predominantly a, a Protestant phenomenon? So I will fully admit on the outset of this that I, I, I know people who would identify as Christian nationalists. I, I I don't know how well I can speak to what it entails. I mean, I can sort of, you know, spitball as well as anyone else, but I haven't had as many conversations with these people to help me really flesh out their positions. I'd love to talk to some, and I've talked to some in, in brief cursory exchanges on Twitter. But uh, I would say that post-liberalism is not as, uh, well, in a certain sense, it's not as America- I won't say American-centric, but uh, it, it places more faults with liberal order that's baked into the system. Whereas Christian nationalism, I think, I think nationalism even, uh, although it is important, national pride is important, and you cannot have a nation without this sense of national pride. I think that Christian nationalism a little more embraces some of the liberal assumptions about the nation state, about its purpose, which is why I don't really subscribe to it. I also just think if you're a Catholic, you know, you think you are theological, if you are Catholic and think you are theologically correct, as a matter of fact, right? Religion is not what's your favorite ice cream flavor, what's your favorite color. It's fact. It's not opinion. If you believe that, then why would you want to restrict that to your geographic location? Not to suggest that I'm that I'm aiming for Catholic empire. That's uh first of all, it's just impossible. But I think that there's more recognition of the global truth. There's more care for that and how we cooperate with other countries in that regard. Whereas Christian nationalism, again, and I'm 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 a poor philosopher and a poorer theologian, but uh 
I, I think that it tends to have more of a, a parochial understanding of just what nationalism is. And, and I don't think that, uh, I don't even know how the Christianity really tethers to it all that much other than as window dressing. Uh, in my conversations with Christian nationalists, it's when, like I said, it's window dressing. It's, it's nothing but ornamentation to what is just nationalism. And again, I nationalism on the whole list of things that we could talk about. Nationalism is not the worst. I think that, that it's wrong to have a knee jerk, you know, reaction to nationalism in any negative way. But, uh, but at the same time, I think that you need to properly order it and, and order sort of uh, national pride to the good. I'm not sure Christian nationalism in the, in the way it's articulated by most online from what I've seen does that. These are very profound answers to questions that I, that I have had for a while, because uh, I'm, I'm not super sympathetic to the post-liberal argument. Generally, I, I, you know, I, I think that they get, they venture into excess as, as Armin laid out with the immigration question and Vermeule's sort of, um, defense not defense but sort of idealized bureaucracy um as the the proper administrative state should be mm -hmm. more like the right-wing administrative state or like the catholic post-liberal administrative state i don't i don't get down with and i also have a bunch of christian nationalist friends who i talk to pretty regularly you might know more than i do <laughs> certainly about right. uh about it and it, 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 i understand better now what the a what the response to or the how we should understand the post-liberal right and also gives me sort of a, a interesting perspective on on christian nationalism that i hadn't really thought about like fully so thank you for i guess doing that you've you've answered well, yeah. some of my my problems i guess I'm happy to uh happy to have helped i i guess you might know more than i do uh just we and i know you guys ask whatever you want but i mean is that is what is your understanding then of, of christian i mean because to my mind all the christian nationalists i've talked to like i said the christianity is very much ornamental or or it's just uh sort of it with these vague references to what you'd call founding stock and sort of but i, I don't see any how it really manifests itself as christian nationalism it just seems like nationalism um without, so I haven't read a whole lot of Stephen Wolf's book. I've skimmed parts of it and I've listened to him talk about it a bit. Uh, Stephen Wolf, of course, writing the book Christian Nationalism, right? Um, I guess is the most substantive explanation of it, uh, aside from you know what you see online. I feel like, like you said, the stuff online is kind of um, a window dressing for other ideologies. They're trying to um, aesthetically graft on to the uh, concept. But my understanding is that it is attempting to. Um, kind of enshrine um whichever denomination it's predicated upon that its tenets onto common and procedural law um how it goes about doing that i'm not entirely sure what that would look like um granted it's all theoretical so the actual application is going to be a lot more difficult than just opining about it to a certain extent many such cases yeah, yeah. kind of like quantum physics you know it always works in theory when you when tire hits right. the road it's a little different certainly well i'll i'll uh, i'll look into it more so i can speak more on it because i don't want to say anything that's incorrect i don't i don't want to sort of load the gun to shoot myself right i don't right. want to say something yeah. that's uh wrong on that front so i'll look into it more but if, um yeah if you want a, an online sort i think the best online christian nationalist account is my pal america's conscience on Twitter. oh yeah i know okay we're, we're yeah. oh that's a good account i yeah. i follow him too yeah he's he's my boy and he's one that i talk to pretty regularly and he has a very 
I think the most nuanced understanding of um, of what Christian nationalism ought to be, um, which is sort of re- sort of reasserting the the sort of Christian moralism underlying the founding principles, and sort of bringing it back mm-hmm. to um, national prominence. Now, of course, he's Protestant, um, so that in, that pretty much includes the the sort of Protestant work ethic, the Protestant uh, ethos, the Protestant sort of underlying foundation that was that was there in the founding. I don't. We can argue the you know the percentages of of sure. Catholic influence and Protestant politics and all that, but I think that that's generally what Christian nationalism should be aiming for. It's sort of reasserting. That old the axiom from John Adams that this constitution is made for moral and religious people, wholly unsuited right. to the government of anything else. So, and maybe we, you know, boys, I'm gonna pitch this to you. Maybe we have America's conscience on in a future episode to talk about this and what it should be, what America, what Christian nationalism should be for America. Yeah, I'm done. I uh I I like it. I mean, as the uh the resident non uh non-Christian on the podcast, I feel I uh Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe he can try to sell me on it too. Uh, actually, uh, same goes to to you, Yuda. Uh, I think um, when you were talking about your uh, your background, I, I I couldn't help but feel at least a little bit of similarity that uh, mm. I grew up, you know, in a in uh, pretty much an atheist household, irreligious, it, but it wasn't. It was never really like uh, it, it wasn't like you know like militant atheism, like you right. must not believe in God or something. It was just my my family didn't go to church, and they they never really had my parents never really growing up either. Um, and then around the around the same age as you, I guess, probably as I was going through college, I didn't have the influence of someone like Deneen, but I uh, I definitely came around to the idea of God and that I definitely would not consider myself an atheist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'd be something more along the lines of a deist than like Thomas Jefferson style. Um, OK, but uh, yeah, not uh, not not really a member of any church, but uh, definitely not an atheist either. Well, we all start somewhere. Um, we're working, no, we're working I, on that too. We're going to fix think, it before long. That, that's uh, well. I mean, that's an encouraging development. I think that, yeah, what you describe with your family upbringing, I'm I'm increasingly calling it normal or American. Now, the fact that it's normal, I don't love, but it seems to be that that is really the experience of most people nowadays growing up. I mean, it's not militant Richard Dawkins atheism. It's almost apathyism, right? It's sort of just. It's not a part of lives anymore. You might go to church on Christmas and Easter. You still put up a tree. You get presents. That's how it was for me. Uh, but there was nothing really more there. Um, and so I think that regrettably, that's the norm. And uh, so I kind of tell people my religious upbringing was very American in the modern sense, certainly not in the traditional sense. But uh, I think that's many people's experience, certainly mine and many people I grew up with. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Uh, I would say, yeah, sadly, that is the norm. Um, at least I, I grew up in, in like, you know, normal kind of like upper middle class suburban lifestyle. And that was definitely yeah. the norm. Yeah, so exactly. Harkening back to political neutrality. Mm. How do you think we attain the conditions in which um, a Christian ethos, regardless of what it is, can become the norm again, as it once was? How do you think we like? What are the mechanisms that you think we should leverage in order to reach that goal? I think there are a few things. I think I'll, I'll remember at uh, 
at a Catholic conference. It was the first time that I met Adrian Vermeule in person. And he had just given a lecture. And I went up and introduced myself. We had been oomphies for two years at that point. So he knew who I was and he knew I was coming. And we talked for a little bit. And I asked him, I said, all right, let's say it was, I forget exactly my question, but let's say we get some of these victories at the Supreme Court level. Let's say that we actually do this, right? Uh, let's just say for, for, for purposes of this story, let's say it's something like Roe v. Wade being overturned, which we did get. You're just going to have a lot of people, really everyone under the age of, I don't know, 40, 50, saying that the Supreme Court is illegitimate and is wrong. You're, you're not going to get people who just say, oh, well, you know, we lost and that's now it's now the rule. He told me that at my age, he didn't really expect me to understand or to know this, but even in his own life, there were many examples of, of something similar happening and some growing pains for a few years before the before people just began to adjust. And he basically said the law can be a very powerful moral teacher, right? The law does not have to follow from culture. The law can also shape culture in a kind of reciprocal relationship. I think that winning at the at, at the courts is one way that we can start. And I think that we do this not just through through more policy-oriented wins. By that, I mean, again, overturning Roe. I mean also uh, more victories for religious liberty, winning back actual first neutrality, right, instead of secularism. Because, again, the 20th century really saw the complete erosion of religious freedom for the sake of secularism, which we understood suddenly to start meaning neutrality. And they're not the same thing at all. But if you ask most people, what is it? Is it neutral to take down crosses from a room? That that's the neutral option. That's not neutral. There's nothing neutral about prejudicing Christianity or Catholicism or anything else. That's that's militant secularism. Um, neutrality would be perhaps to um, to allow an institution to offer whatever religion or to to sort of have whatever religious uh, symbols it wants. But that's no longer seen as neutrality that's that's now um christo-fascist nazism or something but um but i think that winning back first neutrality and then maybe moving from there to sort of unearthing a more of a natural law tradition in the courts i think thomas and alito are best bets for this i think that there's a major split i think that we're wrong to put scalia for example and thomas on the same pedestals because i think that they were very different breeds of what you might call i don't know judicial conservatism right I think uh, I think Thomas understood natural rights, uh, natural law much more than Scalia did. Uh, I think there's uh, a few cases. I think I'm going to talk about this in something I write or post online. I think it was Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Board or something like that. It was a commercial speech case, and I, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but this will illustrate the point. Uh, it was a case about violent video games in the state of California, and. Uh, you know, there was uh, you had if you were under a certain age, you had to have a parent accompany you to buy the violent video game. And the law was challenged. And, and it's been years since I've read this opinion. But basically, Scalia wrote for the majority uh, at the time. This was before the ESRB ratings. You know, you see those on the video games now, right? Everything's rated E, T or, or M. I think this was before that. And so Scalia wrote for the majority saying that the state can't do this. It's overreaching for the state to tell people what they can and can't buy in this regard. Uh, Thomas split from Scalia in order for the dissent and talked about how the community has a interest and a responsibility or an interest in and a responsibility to cultivate the moral upbringing of its of its children. And so a state 
law that restricts children from accessing inappropriate graphically violent or sexual materials through video games uh is it should be should be allowed basically it's a really broad overview and and there's a lot more there and again it's been five years since i've read this opinion actually but uh but i thought that was a really good split that encapsulated the differences between the two so i think it's wrong to collapse them into each other scalia and thomas thomas is incredible alito is incredible scalia is fine um but i think um I think that's that's how we we sort of restore an idea of natural law, which which really informed a lot of our jurisprudence, uh, especially in our in the country's earlier history, and then we lost it with the positivists uh, from there. The, the idea that law was made and not discovered, right? Uh, the idea that that man made law and the state made law and just conferred these rights to people rather than the state discovered the law. Uh, the purpose of the judges was to discover the law written on the human heart, so to speak. Uh, and so I think that that's one thing we could do too. And then the last the last thing that comes to my mind is is the Vermilion, um antidote, which I think is 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 more viable than tearing down the administrative state is to stack it. It's not going to go away. You know, the, the left has succeeded, very effectively succeeded in just staffing permanent Washington with its people, with diehard believers, people who are, People who are true believers, people who are operators for the system, for the belief system, the right could do it if we had the the political will instead of just retreating and saying, let's tear it all down, which is impractical, I would posit impossible. It, it First of all, most of these positions can be, can be eliminated. That's correct. So we don't need to replace it one for one with the bloated system that's there now. You can ax a lot of it, replace it with sympathetic people. I think you can. I think that right now the right hasn't had the time or the infrastructure to find the talent and to plug it in, but they're out there. I think that that's something we could work to do as well. I think. Sure. Um, oh, can I say okay, something right off that? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's an excellent point, and I'm glad you um you you clarified that you you still wanted to ax a lot of it rather than just you know replace it one for one. And I think the um. Like, like you were saying that the uh, the limit on the right has been sort of the uh, they haven't had the uh, the infrastructure or the the appetite for it. And I think that's a, a huge difference you see between the right and the left in just sort of a, a fundamental understanding of how politics works is that the left is really good at the sort of this patronage network system, right? Yes, Where yes. your um your your typical, you know, hardcore lefty college grad that studied whatever, you know, bullshit, something studies degree, uh, there is a place for them. And, and and they were entirely focused on political activism, not real scholarship. There is a place for them, whether it's in the government bureaucracy or any of these massive number of uh, left-wing NGOs, that they yeah. will, they, they will have a, a job waiting for them. Where on the right, you don't have that at all. Like, unless you want to do something very specific, like, you know, be a journalist at um, whatever, like dozen or so of like the like right wing publications that are, you know, of any like significance or you want to work directly as like a staffer on Capitol Hill. You're kind of out of luck uh, on the right. Yeah. Like, there really isn't this there, there isn't this network uh, and the system in place to kind of get our guys into the system. And that that's something we really need to get better at. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think we, we're starting to see it with things like uh, American Moment. You know, I, th I think programs like that, they're very young. They're, they're still in their infancy. But I think we're starting to recognize that this has been a major gap in the right. I don't know what that is. I don't know why that is, because 
it's not like despite being conservatives it's not like we're luddites it's not like we didn't know what time it was so the idea that we just were, were, were a few steps behind on this is really fascinating to me because there there are opportunities for people who are ideologically sympathetic and credentialed to really get in and help with a lot of this and they'd be willing to uh, but we don't like you said we don't have like we both said i guess we don't have the the infrastructure in place to credential and recruit you know we're starting to have like job banks but i mean ones at the heritage foundation right mm-hmm. and so i think they're kind of going through their own little puberty right now i've seen some some shifts at the heritage foundation in their rhetoric they're sort of um i think maybe waking up uh but uh yeah i agree with you certainly uh it's 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 disappointing too because you have these people who could really do a lot of good and they're relegated to the private sector or to or they or if, if they do get into the game they are plugged in somewhere where their talents aren't uh, used properly. And I hope that we start to remedy that. It looks like we're trying. Um, it's taken young millennials and Gen Z to spearhead the efforts, it would seem, though. I think a lot of it is is like institutionalism. Number one, I think that's a, that's a particularly um, consistent pathology in, in conservatism that they're very big on, on maintaining the status quo i guess a lot of it is just and a lot of it is just the temperament that they're temperamentally risk averse um you see this with like the daily wire you know not to shit on my former employer but like the daily wires cultural division is not anything to write home about and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're just a there's not a lot of I don't know, not a lot of established brands within the sort of conservative counter media it's a lot of you know, independent authors, um, you know, mm. writing, writing their, you know, their YA short story or YA novels, science fiction stories on Amazon, you know, self-publishing and all that. And it's, I think that there's a lot of, from a business standpoint, it, I think it's really hard to make that case, no matter what Peachy Keenan says, you know, the amount mm. of the talent is there. It's just, I think that if you're Jeremy Boring or Glenn Beck, or whoever you don't want to go out on a limb for this person that you have no idea what they're about you have no idea what their uh their talents are their their yeah. media production skills are you know it, it's just general reticence that the left doesn't have you know the left can just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks and they can just throw money at a problem because right. it's just there and because there's there's a lot of adherence, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't matter if it's crap, you know, if it pushes the message, there's enough people who would say that pushing the message is important enough that you have to overlook the fact that the Barbie movie is crap, you know? Right. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of that too comes from the, uh, the donor class on the, the right versus on the left that uh, there's no shortage of, you know, very wealthy left-wing people who are willing to throw a lot of money at a project where they're not going to see any sort of immediate, you know, practical return on it that, you know, they'll fund, you know, some art project that they're never going to, they're never going to see a dime from. And it's not going to like, you know, directly lead to some new law being passed that they want, but they know it moves the culture in the direction they want it to go where, you know, conservative donors are, you know, they're, they're generally much more frugal, and when they put money behind something, they want to see results right away. It's like, they're okay, liberal. I want to. They're politically liberal. 
Yeah. But they, um, they, you know, they'll, they, they'll be like, I'll, I'll donate money to this think tank because I want to see this specific, uh, model legislation that they're working on passed in X state. And they, they don't see the, the bigger picture. And I think that's why we are, are just getting our asses kicked in the, uh, in the cultural sphere or had been for the last 50 years. Well, and I think building on that, unlike the left, the American left, on the American right, there is much more of a disconnect between a lot of what this young talent is and what the donor class is, because the American right is really seeing this shift towards, again, we did sort of a while back, we talked about this looming cold civil war, right? Because we recognize that what the donor class is, is not what a lot of younger people are. Now, the the midterms were kind of a referendum on it, and unfortunately, we only got one in in Ohio, but we'll see what the future holds. Um, But the donor class is very disconnected from what a lot of this young talent is, so the donor class doesn't want to fund it. I mean, you look at National Review, you look at Heritage, you look at a lot of the – even Fox, right? You look at a lot of these legacy right-wing – I say right-wing very loosely, I should say just American conservative institutions, and there's a lot lot bigger of a disconnect, whereas on the American left – They've sort of been, besides, you know, the overt Marxists and stuff like that, they've been on the same page for a lot longer. So the donor class is uh, is sympathetic to what a lot of the younger people are on board with, to varying degrees, but it's all there, right? There, there, there are members of the donor class who are on board with it, whereas on the right, I mean, you have Peter Thiel, maybe. Even he, I would say, is not really a paragon of uh, of what a lot of this new right movement is uh, is after, but beyond him – I mean, Fox uh, fired Tucker Carlson. So, I mean, who do you have in these mainstream? And and I know I'm only talking about, I guess, media right now, so I don't mean to, but it's just it's easy to go for that. You have what Michael Knowles, maybe, right? You, you've got Michael Knowles. I, I I and now that Tucker's gone, I mean, I don't know who you have, but there's a real aversion to a lot of the rhetoric of the new right in these legacy institutions, and that probably won't be around forever. But it will be around for another for another couple decades, I think. Sean Hannity's still on TV. Tucker Carlson's <laughs> not. There's there's a reason for that, and uh, I think that's another big problem. Is there's a disconnect between the young talent and the donors on the right that doesn't exist on the left. And to kind of harken back to what John was, so I think he was alluding to regarding institutions. Uh, these people have internalized the notion of neutrality that to not have their views represented is neutrality. And that's part of the reason why mm-hmm. I think we fail so poorly at patronage is because a lot of the institutionalized right believes in meritocracy and believes in you know the love of the game of the American experiment as opposed right. to actually knowing what time it is and knowing that they have to you know get ready for battle. Yeah. I think you're, they're 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 power phobic, right? Yeah. They're almost they're almost victory phobic. They they if we're playing chess the left and the loser dies and the left just gets out a handgun and points it at us. The right is going to be like, well, that's against the rules. Right. Instead exactly. of, I don't know, smacking the gun out of their hand and trying to grab it. You're about, they're about to kill you. And if you lose the game, you die anyway. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the situation we find ourselves in. And the right seems very allergic to exercising power or pursuing patronage, patronage networks. Like you said, they, and I don't know. I, I hope my sincerest hope, is that our sort of younger, more fervent energy, once a lot of it does become, it sort of gets into the game, doesn't lose that edge. Right. Uh, I hope that the young guns of today don't become the boomer cons of tomorrow. <laughs> but I don't know. I hope not. 
I think, uh, well, I think to a certain extent, there's a little boomer con in all of us. Uh, but I'm very curious what we happen. all we all just we all just want to grill at heart. We all, <laughs> exactly. all just want to be left alone and grill. But first, is, we have to win. Is that true neutrality? Just the grill pill. You just want to grill. Just leave us alone. I I don't think so. I I don't think that is. I don't because I, I, like I think neutrality, true neutrality is 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 a fiction in every sense. Because even to say we just want to grill, that's saying well I think society should be oriented in a way that allows people to attend entirely to their private lives without any care for what others are doing. Really, I mean that in and of itself is a is a prescription for how you think society ought to run. Yeah, it's hands off. But saying that we should be hands off is still a prescription. What if I say I don't think we should be as hands-off? Then all of a sudden we disagree. So you're not neutral. We have a disagreement. I I, I don't think that neutrality is the idea. I mean, it's it's impossible. It's not it's not even a thing. So when earlier when you mentioned, you know, go from the secular establishment, so to speak, to a state of neutrality, then become a, you know, a substantively our vision mm-hmm. ordered society. What does that mm-hmm. intermediary phase of so-called neutrality look like then? So in that regard, I think neutrality is possible. I was speaking more to how you think society should be oriented when you're talking about the grill pill. I think that's impossible. <laughs> in the context of of, of religious freedom, uh, I think that you move back. It's really more to just – I think we're starting to see this with this Supreme Court, right? The idea that it's not it, – it is indeed uh, militant or, or at least um, – coercive secularism to require someone to violate their sincerely held faith to service a customer who wants something that 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 violates their faith to refer to someone as something that violates their faith to say that no this this faith tradition these sincerely held religious objections or religious opinions have equal value if not greater value again that is in the first amendment uh, than these other uh characteristics and right now, the left doesn't understand. I remember after the opinion a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, Pete Buttigieg, it was about uh, religious freedom, and I think it was something to do with a web page for for a homosexual marriage or something like that. I forget, but it was something like that. And Pete Buttigieg uh, really made a tweet that was like, you know, you you shouldn't be able to discriminate based on opinion or something, right? Something like that. And there are so many things wrong with this, right? Because it's not opinion, like we said. It's not ice cream flavor. It's not where you like to go on vacation. This is this is a protected characteristic under the law, no different than race or gender or national origin. Religion is a protected characteristic. So first, we need to regain that more class. It's not even classical. It was 50 years ago, understanding of what religion is. It is not preference. It is not a prejudice in the way that someone would say, I don't want to serve people of a certain racial group or religious group or or um or sexual orientation. You know, I'm, I'm my doors are completely closed to you, right? It's it's not just a prejudice. It's a protected trait, one of the most protected traits in our in our in our history. And so I think that on the left, you see this real hostility to treating religion like what it was meant to be treated as. They want to reduce it to opinion because opinions generally you know outside of certain you know free speech jurisprudence you know they're they're not protected in the same way if if we can because their view is if we can reduce religion to prejudice then we can we can make it basically illegal to uh to exercise your religious views even in your own business so i think that's the first step is is helping religion to regain what it has lost in the past 50 years 
70 years, I don't know, uh, and, and sort of elevating it again, not above, not even above what it was. That's the goal for later. But right now, just getting it back to where it was, because right now we are on the defensive and we need to regain some ground. Fair, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's that's very true. And um, I think you're you're right in that the, the, they all, they really do want to reduce the, um, you know, re- religion to, you know, oh, no, 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 that's not uh, it's not, you know, it, it's an opinion. It's not it's nothing more than that. And but they do that with every I mean, Christianity in particular, they'd like to do that with every religion except for their own, of course, that like they right. they their politics is their religion like they, they they are inseparable that leftism is a religion to them and they have you know religious zeal in that like no not only must all other religion be removed from the public uh public sphere our religion must dominate the public sphere that's why you know you get the uh the pride flags in city hall and all that right and no you can't have any uh a nativity scene on the lawn no there can't be a christmas tree or anything like that but no, right. there must be pride flags everywhere on every government building. It's 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 colonialism. It's ideological colonialism or ideological chauvinism, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it's uh, that you will have no gods before me. I mean, that's what it is, right? And sorry if you hear sirens right now. There's fire trucks or something going on outside. But um, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's first of all, yeah, it's very theological, at least procedurally and structurally. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's a jealous god for sure. And yeah, you can't have a nativity scene. But you can have any other sort of symbol of fealty to this ideology, which is, again, just an ideology. In our law, the nativity scene should be far more protected than a pride flag. Uh, but, but they're not because they symbolize things that are different, uh, viewed differently nowadays, or one of those in this house we believe signs, right? Those the more protection than a nativity scene, when by all accounts it shouldn't. Uh, if you want true neutrality, at the very least, we have to first get back to the stage where we can say you can have the nativity scene and the in this house we believe sign we have to at least get there because right now we have a hostility to even saying the nativity scene can be there where we we, we go from zero to 100 but uh but yeah your point's well taken and uh it's a jealous god and 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 the the subtle coercion that we see in the white collar hr world right the 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 pictures on the long house right right yeah i mean I, I thought that article was pretty good, actually. I, you know, I, I, um, I didn't have a, pr- and I don't mind first things publishing anons. Um, I think that's fine too. I think that uh, I don't necessarily like the connection to Bronze Age pervert. Uh, I think he himself is a goofball. I mean, his book is funny. I laughed when I was reading it, but I don't think his prescriptions are sound. I think he is barbaric. But anyway, um, to. He he would probably uh, enjoy that. Uh, he, he he would he would he would take that as high praise. He would take anytime a Christian is like oh or Barbara, he takes that as high praise. He's he's a Nietzsche fanboy, uh, but but I, I call them all the towel boy fandom. That's what they are, right? They're just <laughs> these the they return to towel boy nonsense. I I don't like how they behave online. He's oh you're clutching your pearls at decorum. You know this is womanly behavior. No, yes, everybody's Mike Pence. If you're even remotely Christian, you're all Mike. right. Exactly. He hates uh, Vermeule and Amari specifically. He really hates those guys for the immigration things that we've talked about before. He's, but he, uh, I don't think he's um, not in the same way that the Christian nationalists disagree. You know, I think he is, he's pretty open with his uh, opinions and, uh, does not like them. Uh, he has he hasn't talked as much about Deneen or Pecknold or Pappen, but Amari and 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 Vermeule he goes after hard. 
So of the uh, current post-liberal academics, uh, I guess you can throw Sarab in there as well. Um, who do you think has had the most measurable effect thus far? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, God, I like all of them, and any any of them is going to... Uh... Yeah, not to, not to offend any of them. By any right, ways. right. If they if they ever listen, you know, I, the I correct answer myself, is all of them. Right, all of them. Yeah. But my first answer is all of them. Okay, let's let's get that on the record <laughs> and be very clear. But uh, oh man, I mean, I want to say, <laughs> I mean, Amari, it's unfair because he he's a journalist and he okay. he gets uh, more media attention in a certain way. So I'm not going to include him mm-hmm. just because it's also just apples to oranges. Right, um, right. So let's let's not talk about it. I think you gotta say Deneen or Vermeil. I mean, they both teach at Premier. I mean, not to not to talk down at the University of Dallas or Catholic U, where Pappen and Pecknell teach, respectively. But I think that to teach at Notre Dame or Harvard is is a different platform. I think that uh that's one thing. I think the nature of their publications. I mean, Deneen is close with Vance. Deneen is hosting these events now with Vance showing up too. Uh, he wrote a new book. Deneen's writings are also much more accessible. I've read uh, many of Vermeule's books, and ar- his articles are, are accessible, but his books are not. Whereas Deneen's are, I would probably go with Deneen. Uh, because Deneen also, I think that um, uh, Vermeule, uh, the immigration stuff, no matter where you come down on it, is you, you will alienate someone with it. I think Deneen has done a good job of sticking to issues that... Uh, when he talks about more things like economic inequality, when he talks about uh, sort of the credentialist technocratic elites um, in the in sort of the sense of Christopher Lash talking about them, I think that that's, that resonates with a lot more people on the American right now. And I think uh, – so I would say probably Deneen, but all of them. I think they're all great influences, even despite any minor disagreements I might have um, with any of them or others who aren't in that sort of group of four. But uh, I would probably say Deneen. Yeah, again, I think um, Deneen also he got the uh, he even got the attention of Obama. Remember when? Yeah, uh, exactly. Obama right. was talking about his book, so even uh, even even people on the left had to take notice that are like, hey, this guy, uh, this guy is saying something here that might uh, might make some sense. Right. Point, exactly. Yeah. I think that Deneen I would probably say is number one, uh, but Papin is also very involved with the government of Hungary. I think that's huge. I think he's big on the family policy stuff there. Uh, and he, he's got a certain amount of influence over there. And so that could, he could help make that a good, better template for other countries to follow. It's an uphill battle because America and much of West Europe is anti-family entirely, despite what they might say. So it's an uphill battle. But I, I don't know. You know, I think that uh, they all do something different. And uh, that's such a cop-out answer. But it is an honest answer in this context. I don't think it was a cop-out. I think you threaded that needle quite effectively. <laughs> Phew. Uh, where do you think the um, Hungarian experiment will end up? And do you think it's a tenable platform or um, blueprint for the rest of the West to adopt? Or do you think that's very unique to them and their culture and this specific moment in their history? I think it's a little bit of both. And this is not actually, despite that opening, I don't think this is a cop-out answer. Um, and and here's what I mean. I think that, so I uh, attended a uh, a conference at Steubenville just about a year ago. It was uh, the Franciscan University. It was Amari hosted it. He uh, he hosted it, and uh, Deneen was a speaker. Uh, Vermule, um, um, Pappen, Pecknold, all those guys were there. So too were Michael Lind, J.D. Vance, um, Josh Hammer, a few other people. 
it was a good conference. It was called Restoring a Nation, I think is what it was called. It was one of the <laughs> being approached without knowing who you are. People be like, you're Utah. I was like, well, yeah, it was very weird. But uh, anyway, uh, one of Papin's talks was about the Hungarian effort. It's the sort of the pro-family policies, right? And I think that the most positive, the most uh, promising ideas that we see there relate to attempts at debt relief based upon family formation, right? Um, and he, I think he just wrote an article about this a month ago or so. But uh, I had sort of gotten the sneak peek because I heard him say it in person a year ago, talking about how, you know, if uh, if a family has a child, then X percent of one of the parents, usually the mother's, I think, student debt is relieved. If they have a second child, another X percent. And by the time they have three, the whole student debt is washed away. Uh, it's a way to incentivize family formation and uh, address the anxieties that a lot of young couples have because they they hold off starting a family for career purposes, economic purposes. Right now, I am always of the mind that you will make it work. Right, I mean, you're never gonna. There's never gonna be a perfect time to have a kid, but uh, I do understand that there are better times than others. I think a lot of people in in America wait because the money's too tight. They've got student loans. They've got other kinds of loans, and uh, I think that the Hungarian response to that is 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 very promising. Now, Papin did concede that student loans, the cost of college, is not what it is here. In Hungary, you know, you go you go to an out of state pr- public school or you go to any private school. What is it? Two hundred and fifty, two hundred seventy thousand dollars if you don't get a scholarship. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. But I think that tethering family formation to addressing young people's economic anxieties is very promising. Maybe not doing it in a one for one copying Hungary, but sort of saying, let's do something analogous. Maybe we make it about a different kind of debt. Maybe we give some kind of credit. Maybe we enhance the uh, the tax benefits. I don't know. I'm not a wonk, especially in this field. But I think that that's something that's very positive. Uh, I don't know enough about Hungary culturally or historically to say how this will go, whether um, what the, how they will respond to this. I know that some of the critics, and I have not delved into this, but I know that some of the critics say that this actually hasn't helped the birth rate in Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, that the birth rate is more or less the same and that it hasn't shot up and is lower than other Western European nations that are much more uh hostile to family formation policy wise and culturally so i don't know maybe it's in its early phases and we won't know but i think that the american right will deservedly lose every election in the future if it does not do something to address young people's uh, economic anxieties related to student loans mortgages uh, medical debt anything i think that it's callous the you made it you may you, you what is it you uh you agreed to take out the loan now you got to pay it back you're right an 18 year old who lived his whole 18 years of life being told by every authority figure to go to college, that there was no real alternative, agreed to take out a loan. He was an adult, but I would I would also contend he didn't know what he was fully doing because every authority figure he trusted told him to do this. We shouldn't just give free ride. At the same time, we should tether some kind of debt relief to his concerns and have him engage in some kind of socially productive behavior. Family formation, I think, is, is a great way to do that. We already do this in certain ways, right? Like a lot of schools will will um, forgive certain elements of debt or even the federal government if you do some sort of public service work, you work in the government or something for X years. We we even latently do – we do this with uh, the military academies or ROTC, right? We, we, we reward uh, socially productive behavior with some sort of uh, relief of economic anxiety, free tuition, tuition relief, forgiveness of loans, right? But we always keep it in that narrow context in America when I think we could – why don't we tether it to something else? 
And I think that uh, what Hungary is doing is promising, at least uh, as a springboard. No, I think that's valid. It's, I mean, it's it is also a pretty young project to see the full uh, conclusion right. out of. Um, the fertility thing in particular, I think, is, I mean, it's obviously especially distressing because we're not making enough people to survive as a civilization. But it also isn't like confined solely to the West. So, you know, industrialized or I guess westernized Asia, like uh, uh, South Korea and Japan in particular, mm-hmm. are also horribly struggling with um, fertility. And yeah. it's it's just an interesting thing that this is happening across the world all at the same time. I think, the, I think the obvious answer is probably like, you know, we're not eating. It's it's diet. It's the chemicals we're consuming. And it's just a culture of decadence in general. But I right. th- I'd I like mean, to think there's some. Go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, go on. You like to think what? I'd like to think there's some kind of um, unified approach the world could take to it. But then again, you run into the issue of, you know, unified world approaches being absolutely horrible. So generally, I don't think they account for differences that I would not no. pretend to know. Right. The whole point no. is that, well, we, you and I could sit here and say, why is it like that in South Korea exactly. or Japan? And maybe 50 percent of what we say is right, because 50 percent has overlap with why it's going on here in America. But then maybe another 30% of it is due to things that are specific to South Korea that we don't understand. Exactly. And then maybe of that, there's another, what, 20% that is a thing is we don't understand. We think we do about America. You know, we're wrong about our own country. I don't know. Um, so I, I wouldn't pretend to have some kind of top-down solution. But I do think that te- any socially desirable behavior, if you can if you can tether that to some kind of benefit, you will see the socially desirable behavior go up. I think that if all of these countries are experiencing low birth rates, then uh, then then you then you can tether that to something, right? Uh, and so I think that that's worth looking into. It'll look different maybe in every country because I don't know what the economic anxieties of a 28 year old in Japan are. Maybe they're the same as they are here. Maybe they're mostly similar. Maybe they're completely different. I don't know. I don't live there, and I think that even in uh, pretending to know would be arrogant on my part. No, I definitely think that's valid. It's we simply just don't know what we don't know about this whole situation. I think that in America, I mean, you certainly see with the with the sort of white collar, college educated, if not advanced degree holding people, there's just this I want to take more impromptu trips to Miami, or I want to have a certain number in my savings or in my investments before I start to make these important life decisions. Right. But there's never it's like I said, you're people were having kids for thousands of years when they had a lot less resources than you do, right? You're doing just fine. You're doing better than most people throughout all of history. The problem is they don't want to give up a lot of comforts that they don't even recognize as comforts. These are things that to them, they should just be entitled The sort of the, the freedom, the economic freedom, the, the brunch that costs $200 every Saturday. These are things you can do when you don't have children. Uh, and if you have a good enough job, maybe you can even afford it with, with children, but there are other demands of your time. Your time is no longer yours. And a lot of it's just selfishness. Not all of it. I'm uh, I'm very sensitive to the economic anxieties. I think it's, it's, it's criminal, really. But there's also on the side of the actual of the of the people, there is some some selfishness among our generation. By our generation, I just mean anyone under the age of 40 ish. Um, they don't want a monopoly on their time. They they want to be complete masters of their own time. And then, you know, it's probably a bit of the boomer con in me, like you were referencing earlier. This is probably true of humans in general, right? This was true of our parents, our parents' parents, our great-grandparents when they were young. 
it was a tough uh, adjustment to no longer be the master of your own time. But I think that's a big part of it too. I think um, your point uh, to that people have been having kids for, you know, all of, all of history and at times much worse than our own is, uh, is really true. I've been um, in my uh, spare time listening to a really good podcast, actually the um, history of Byzantium. And uh, they go through specifically uh, the period of the first major outbreak of um, uh, the bubonic plague in, in Europe. Okay. And um, at that time, and it wasn't just that there was plague. There also was environmental catastrophe that I guess they don't, they're still not certain exactly where it was, but there was some sort of uh, enormous volcanic eruption that literally mm. blacked out the sun for like multiple years where like crops failed all over the place. And, you know, like a quarter of the population had died of the plague and like people literally thought the world was ending and they were still having kids. So, you know, times might be tough now, but people have had it way worse throughout most of history and they still manage. So I think, um, I think uh, there's still hope. I think we can, I think we can fix the problem, but um, it won't be easy. Something I want to inquire your your stance about is, is something that I've on the subject of political neutrality, something that I've been having conversations a lot with just my family and friends really is that like the the sort of the political center as a as a function of society, as a function of politics is is dead. And the the one that I always go back to is that there's no middle ground with people who think that you can mutilate your children's genitals at, you know, pre-pubescent ages because he or she thinks that he's the opposite sex so right um you know this is your first of all this is your invitation to dunk on centrists because we we disrespect milk toast fence sitters here but also like good what do you like what does a a proper sort of middle ground starting point look like in in the sort of pragmatic political sense Right. Right. It's like, uh, you know, who tried to, who tried to thread that needle, Asa Hutchinson. Did you guys watch the, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We talked about that on our show previously. Yeah. Just watching him was awesome. Uh, but yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's what the attempts to be a centrist on this look like, which are not centrist at all. They are, they are very clear, um, decisions as to, as to what side you're going to take, because you're either on board with this or not. Um, I think that what you can do to try and move to not move to the middle, but to reach people in the middle, people who is appeal to ignorance, you know, because because when when you when you couch all of this in the language of gender affirming or or care, right? I think Asa Hutchinson called it healthcare, and Tucker Carlson called him out. It's this is what the left always does, right? They manipulate language. They, it's sex worker, not prostitute. It's uh, I, I can, you know, any number of things. They do this with it. They they win through language. They sanitize language to make it digestible to normal human beings because otherwise, normal human beings would say, "Well, no, absolutely not." And I think that it has to get uncomfortable. It has to show them. It's like uh, I remember there was a time where I would clutch my pearls when I would see pro life demonstrators hold images of aborted fetuses. I would say, look, I agree with you, but that's that's you know in poor form, right? These are dead babies that we're just holding up pictures of. That's that's not right. And then over time, I start to think, well, that's the point, right? Those that we're holding up pictures of dead babies. 
you're, you're, you're showing people this, the, this is the fruits of what you support. It is not just, well, it's not at all healthcare. It's not reproductive care. This is, this is a dead baby. And I think that similarly, it will involve some discomfort, both on the centrists we're trying to reach and maybe even ourselves. Because even if we agree that this is all wrong, it's still to, to, to show these images and to use them politically still might, especially of a child, still probably feels uncomfortable. But you see it on Twitter now. You start to see people spreading this being like, look, this might gross you out. This might disturb you. That's the point. These botched procedures, right? Or these news articles about how there was just one this morning or yesterday about how a uh, an 18-year-old uh, died in the UK from uh, an attempt to turn their colon into a into a um, vagina, right? I think that uh, that's what it was. You have to show them the uncomfortable things and not just show them the propaganda because the left is very good at concealing propaganda as objective, neutral uh, resources. They're very good at it. This is why they've won in, in education, both K-12 through and in higher education. This is why they've won in government. It's why that their movies can be basically propaganda. That They're very good at couching their messages in what seem to be neutral positions. And, uh, and I think that the only way to fight that is to just call their bullshit. It's not to, to try and do the same thing as they do necessarily because we don't have the institutional power in Hollywood or in academia. Not right now. Maybe one day. Not right now. We just have to confront it you know, and say, Here, okay, they, they call this healthcare. Let's take a look. Here's a kid now who never went through puberty, who never will, will never have sexual feelings. They, they don't know what it means to feel sexual pleasure. They'll never reproduce. They'll never find any sort of normal uh, sexual romantic connection. Uh, barring any kind of other advancements um, or, or or corrective procedures, and it's 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 and we're and not only we're we doing this to adults, we're, we're we're ideologically brainwashing children to believe. I mean, there was a time where right someone like if you were if you were a little girl, you like playing with trucks, you like play, it was okay. She's a tomboy or a little boy, and you didn't like sports. You like doing the drama program, okay? He likes doing drama, and he's a boy. He likes doing dance. Maybe you say, I don't fully get it. I liked sports as a kid, but you know, okay, whatever. Now it's, you have these ideologically um, captured parents who believe that they have been informed by objective sources, but really it's been ideological, uh, ideological infiltration have, have told them that, well, the only thing to do now is to take your kid to one of these clinics, which will then are economically incentivized to perform the procedures or at least start the hormone treatments. I say treatments very loosely, um, you know, and, and I don't know if you guys have read the book by Ryan Anderson when Harry became Sally, uh, but he does a very good job at cataloging how the left does this in this context specifically. He talks about how Johns Hopkins fired anyone who challenged this new sort of um, orthodoxy, right? This is not a objective discovery. This is not any kind of uh, traditional medical research. This is ideologically motivated, and I think that we have to call it out. And we are. But we have to get gritty with it. You can write a lot of books. You can Ryan Anderson can write more books, and I think he should. But uh, I think it's going to require an uglier, more wet work. Right? It's going to uh, like this is showing people the fruits of what they're advocating. And it's unfortunate that you know the institutional right is just too. You know they they internalize a lot of this stuff where it's they want to be polite. They want to just not gross out their neighbors or not offend anyone's sensibilities but you're absolutely right. correct in order to stop an abject evil you have to name the evil and show people what it entails 
And, and, you know, Asa, going back to Asa Hutchinson, just dragging him over the coals. There was a point where he said, because Tucker had asked him another question about the, the minors, the minor transitions or whatever it was. And he says, well, Tucker, I hope we can talk about some issues. And, and Tucker's response is, well, this is, this is an issue. This is a huge issue. And the crowd, of course, cheered. It's, it, they don't, it's not even that they, that they've taken a position necessarily. It's that they see it as a non-issue. Because it's something they just don't want to talk about, like you said, that for fear of offending, for fear of what they might see as right-wing government overreach. Because, again, they're power-phobic. All these people right. are just afraid of exercising power. Um, I don't know what it is, but he, the they don't even see it as an issue. When really, even if you are a diehard leftist, you know, um, pro-minor surgeries, all this – even you would say it's an issue, right? Everyone thinks it's an issue. What the president or any elected official in a country thinks about the reality of gender and sex, that is a that, you would like to know that. That that is a very uh, core of of that's a core question of human life. You want your statesmen to have opinions on that and not just tax policy. And I think that Asa Hutchinson really demonstrated how unfit he is for the role with that answer more than anything else it was his throwaway remark that indicated that he doesn't even see this as an issue when you're elected to be commander in chief to be the head of a nation you should give thought to these questions these are these are deep questions we do not want a technocrat in the white house we had technocrats run things through a lot of 2020 and 2021 and uh and i didn't like how that went you don't want someone who cares about very narrow things you want someone who cares about what the human experience is and to that point, uh, again, just dunking on Asa Hutchinson, one of the things I find incredible, I mean, there's a lot of things I find uh, distasteful about him, but his uh, constant, not his constant, but his prominent uh, references to Buckley and Reagan um, yeah. are incredibly egregious because if he actually you know, properly understood what these men stood for, they'd be fighting this fight just as hard as they could with every single breath they have. Like Reagan right. was one of the, I think he was the last Republican president to actually push back against the civil rights regime. It's these people fundamentally don't even understand their own worldviews or ideologies. They they took from it what they wanted and they made a caricature of it. Yeah, so when exactly. I criticize Reagan, I'm I'm almost more criticizing what they've done to Reagan. I'm criticizing it's like weekend at Bernie's, right? They're they're yeah. carrying around this carcass of Reagan. I'm criticizing that carcass. The man himself, although I do have some qualms with the with the abortion front, no fault divorce, I think. Um, I think overall, I, I take less issue with Reagan, the man and Reagan, the president than I do with Reagan, the caricature. And it's, the, it's their own caricature. It's not like the left is saying that these, that these right-wingers believe it. These right-wingers are fully adopting this, uh, power phobic, um, lens because that they think that's fealty to Reagan. I don't know what that is. I don't know if, why that was their takeaway. Um, but, it, but it was, and I think that we're worse for it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's this elaborate mythos that the modern conservative movement has built up around Reagan, Lincoln, and the founding. And especially especially my angle, my issue with it is the mythos around the founding, you know, especially the the sort of small government as ends that liberty mm. is the is the the final end of government. And I'm like, no. Like you guys talk all the time about, you know, you post all the memes and the the weird like graphics about we hold these truths to be self-evident life liberty and the pursuit of happiness there's a second part to that sentence that everybody seems to miss that to secure these rights life liberty and the pursuit of happiness governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers 
from the consent of the governed. And this is something that we saw, like you said, with COVID. This is something that this is why I don't like Christie known. This is why I really don't like yeah. this, this. Just the state of South Carolina can be retroceded back to, to England because like these people are so fundamentally lost in this myth about the founding and the principles and what the Republican Party is supposed to stand for, like capital SG small government, that they've yep. just completely lost the ability to opine effectively or govern effectively on any of these like core fundamental issues like the trans issue that are fundamental questions about human nature. And these leaders have just completely abdicated their role as leaders. Right. They and, and and what's most tragic is what, what what we see and recognize as abdication is is mere um to, to their mind is the fulfillment of their duties. I mean, that they see themselves as as fulfilling the promises of the founding by refusing to exercise power for the good of the people. They they have a very warped view of the founding of the history that surrounded it, uh, certainly of the political, uh the political views of Washington and Adams. Uh, and the Federalists certainly, and uh, it's it, and I I think that to, to course correct will require Herculean effort. I mean, I, because all the moneyed interests are in this this hands off approach. At least for now, uh, it's like what we talked about the disconnect between the donor class and the young talent. The the moneyed interests are not in restoring this understanding of the founding. I mean. It's actually stunning that you can even get events with someone like Denis saying what he's saying. I'm actually more surprised that there's not more resistance. Uh, same with Amari's new book, honestly. I think that there is this real – I'm surprised they even get what they get because there's this real um, – I've said it like three times now, power phobia. They think that it is a fulfillment of the promises of the founding to to abdicate responsibility. Because they they have uh, I don't know maybe they had poor civics when they were growing up maybe it's the see I um I I I approach it from maybe a little more cynical lens but um a big fan of Darren Beatty and he always describes these types as the the Washington generals that they're they're professional losers and I think they know that that's the role that they're in. And it's not that they're just misguided and they're like, oh, no, the this is actually what the founding fathers would want. I don't um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think they know exactly what they're doing and they realize, well, there's there's a payday in it for me if I do this. So I'm yeah. just going to I'm just going to make the right noises and, you know, talk about, oh, we're, you know, small government, individual liberty, yada, yada, yada. And then we're going to lose every time and I'll make it OK. So it's all, all well, good yeah. for me. I it's, think it's a place that's you go now to get rich. Yeah, it's a it's a career. You know, it's it's a career, but not a vocation in the way it used to be. Public service. There's no sense of obligation, right? Nobility no longer obliges. We have a nobility that lacks nobility, really. I mean, our our nobility has no sense of of uh, of obligation to the people below it. Um, and you're right. I'm sure a lot of these people, if not most of them, are informed by just self-interest. There's no real other way to 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 respond to that because they're not dumb. They're, very, they're some of them are very educated people, uh, but money talks, and so I think you're right. So we have this terrible habit on the show to doom spiral and end pessimistically. Nah. What is a reason to be optimistic in our uh, culture and our politics that you believe we have? 
you were all talking. We're talking. People will listen to this. Uh, these books are being written, right? The books we've talked about here, there will be more. There is a growing um, level of energy and excitement on the young right. Uh, and it will be difficult because I think that we will, this cold civil war will continue. And there will be different factions, new factions will form, different groups will coalesce into each other. And you know, in 20 years, we might not even know where the lines are from where they are today. But um, I think that we're having these conversations, and this is where it starts. And, and we're not just having them in private, right? This is being recorded, but it will be posted. People will get the message. I'm trying to spread the message. We've got the, the post-liberals are spreading their message, and other members, other folks on the new right, even if they're not in the post-liberal camp, are spreading theirs in ways that uh, I didn't see or hear about 10 years ago even, much less you know, in the 80s before we were around. There was there was a dogma that is starting to crack. And it's not you can't crack it yet because there's enough voters who were born in the 60s who are still around today. Thank God, because those are my parents. But, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, there will come a time when that generation's influence wanes enough that there will hopefully be a power vacuum. And we can take some of these ideas and instantiate them. Uh, you know, this conversation would be unthinkable. I think a lot of a lot of the dogmas that we have challenged on this call, a lot of the ch- or in this conversation rather, and a, and a lot of the uh, the dogmas we challenge on Twitter, all of us uh, on YouTube and everything else, would be unthinkable to challenge. Uh, you know, if you were trying to make a name for yourself in the young right, or or trying to you know get in with uh, the Young Republicans Club of any college, right? They'd say go to the Young Democrats Club. So they because they have this 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 fear of of ever doing anything when the government does stuff it's socialism so i think that even just conversations like this are reason to feel to feel good i also think that the direction of the right like i said the midterms were didn't go the way we wanted um the the ones i was really watching of course were vance and masters um and the and masters didn't get there i think that's too bad some of the others of course i would have liked the republicans to win but i wasn't crying about oz losing um, you know, that, that one, I, I was crying in the sense that Fetterman won. Yeah. I cried because Fetterman yeah. won, not because Oz lost, let's say. Um, but I think that even having Vance there, having Josh Hawley there, those two guys in particular are really the spearhead. I think, I think Trump is still good. Um, I think that, I think that we need, it will really depend on 2028 more than 2024, because right now there's an incumbent advantage, um, and I, I I don't see as much as of a, refer, of a referendum, but I think that 2028 presidential election, which I don't think will be Trump for one reason or another, will be the real referendum. Uh, obviously, if Trump gets the nom and wins in 2024, all the better. But uh, what I don't want is someone like, let's say, through some amazingly horrific turn of events, Nikki Haley gets the nom and wins, or even just gets the nom, frankly. Because I think that right now we're in this identity crisis where the, the 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 old right is still alive enough to to kill us, and if it can if it if if we combine a disappointing midterms with someone like Nikki Haley getting the nomination or Mike Pence, then we will um then 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 that's that's a huge indictment of of what this movement is. Whereas if someone like Trump gets it for all his faults, DeSantis, um, say those two. I think that that keeps it alive. We cannot concede anything back to the neocon consensus. 
but I think that uh, that there is an energy still. We have things like I said, like American Moment and other new credentialing institutions that are trying, and uh, and I think that we'll, we'll get there. I think that we we will adjust, and uh, we're doing a lot better than we were even five to ten years ago. So I feel optimistic about that. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I tend to agree. I think that's a good yeah. Uh, I think that's a good finishing point. Good positive message. All right, Udemonia Esquire. Where can people find you? I am on Twitter uh, and YouTube primarily, but really, I mean, you can find the YouTube through the Twitter. The uh, It's Eudaimonia or Eudaimonia, which is how I always pronounced it. And then everyone on Twitter starts saying Eudaimonia. So either or, um, followed by an ESQ. But uh, that's me. And you can find everything else through there. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, man. This is, this is, uh, our guests have been really good. This has been right up the right up there with them you know you this is this was awesome it was a great conversation i really appreciate you guys uh being flexible with the time and having me on this was fun no all problem. right hope to see you again yeah, soon yeah it was our pleasure absolutely take care guys hey folks hope you enjoyed the show be sure to like and subscribe to heavyweights podcast on both youtube and rumble Follow us on Twitter at heavyweights76, and the show is available for download on all major platforms as well. Hope to see you soon.